0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into of the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of In of the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. 1 Timothy is the first of three letters of the Apostle Paul that are generally grouped together and that are often studied as a unit. Scholars refer to them as the pastoral epistles because they are letters that Paul wrote to encourage young pastors in the work of the ministry. So we have 1st and 2nd Timothy and also Titus together in this group. The letters we refer to as 1st and 2nd Timothy were written to a young man named Timothy that Paul first met on his missionary visits to Lystra as recorded in Acts 16. The text says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy It seems likely that Timothy was converted during Paul's first visit and that when Paul came through the city on his second visit, as recorded in Acts 16, Timothy's progress in the faith was such that Paul identified him as a potential helper and leader in the Christian ministry. The Easton's Bible Dictionary provides this basic biographical sketch. Timothy, he was designated to the office of an evangelist and went with Paul in his journey through Phrygia, Galatia, and Mysia, also to Troas and Philippi and Berea. Thence he followed Paul to Athens and was sent by him with Silas on a mission to Thessalonica. We next find him at Corinth with Paul. He passes now out of sight for a few years and is again noticed as with the Apostle Paul at Ephesus, Acts 19.22, whence he is sent on a mission into Macedonia. He accompanied Paul afterwards into Asia, Acts 20.4, where he was with him for some time. When the Apostle was a prisoner at Rome, Timothy joined him, Philippians 1.1, where it appears he also suffered imprisonment, Hebrews 13.23. During the apostle's second imprisonment, he wrote to Timothy, asking him to rejoin him as soon as possible and to bring with him certain things which he had left at Troas, his cloak and parchments, Second Timothy 4.13. According to tradition, after the apostle's death, he settled in Ephesus as his sphere of labor and there found a martyr's grave. Closed quote. Scholars differ somewhat as to where precisely in that biography we should try and fit the letter known to us as 1 Timothy. The traditional view is that it was written between Paul's first and second Roman imprisonments. If we assume, as the prison letters themselves seem to anticipate, that Paul was released from that imprisonment recorded at the end of the book of Acts and that he undertook the missionary journeys he said that he intended to go on, Then it seems that Paul wrote this letter while on one of those journeys, shortly before he was re-arrested and subsequently executed back in Rome. Thus, 2 Timothy was written during the second imprisonment, the one that led to his death, and 1 Timothy was written shortly before that. Both of them were probably written around AD 62 to 64. So, at some point After the book of Acts, that's probably your most important reference point, Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to deal with some problems that had arisen from inside the church. In Acts 20, Paul warned that this could happen. He said to the elders in Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them closed quote now whether that statement was based on divine inspiration or just a very biblical and very mature understanding of human nature we aren't told but obviously it was accurate because it did happen in just that way within a very short period of time and that is one of the warnings that is implicit in this letter the church of ephesus is one of the most important churches in the new testament We believe that the church was founded by Priscilla and Aquila. It seems that way, but Paul visited there and preached there on multiple occasions. On his third missionary journey, Paul lived there for over three years and from there launched a massive missionary enterprise into the whole of Asia Minor. So, This church has been very well led. They were well planted. They were well taught. They were well established. They were well cared for. And yet, within the lifetime of the apostles, they begin to fall away. That is incredible. That is distressing, but that is reality. As churches, we are never more than one generation away from theological oblivion. So we have to keep a close watch on ourselves and on our doctrine. And that is what this letter is about. Paul wrote to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus in order to address the false teaching and the false teachers that were having an unhelpful influence in the church, and in order to build up and buttress the order and structure of the church, hopefully to keep this sort of thing from happening again in the future. By the way, let's just pause and notice that. The Apostle Paul seems to think that good order and proper structure will serve as a helpful defense against the spread of false teaching in the church. Isn't that interesting? I don't imagine that many of us would instinctively make that connection, but the Apostle Paul is making it here, and we should take note of it. Now, very quickly, before we move on, we should probably just acknowledge that many liberal scholars today question whether or not the pastoral epistles were actually written by the Apostle Paul. But Donald Guthrie in the Tyndale New Testament Commentary Series writes, there are no grounds for holding that the early church had any doubts about the authenticity of these epistles, close quote. The early church understood all three of these letters to have been written by the Apostle Paul. No one seriously challenged that idea until the 19th century, a century in which it was popular to challenge everything that was once believed by the early church. There is, however, no good reason for believing that these letters were written by someone other than Paul, and a great many very good reasons for believing that they were. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his son in the faith, and to the church in Ephesus. So with all that being said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope— To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I've already said that in some sense, this letter is both to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, and almost every scholar and commentator is eager to make that point. Few, however, make it as strongly as John Calvin, who says, This epistle appears to me to have been written more for the sake of others, than for the sake of Timothy. And that opinion will receive the assent of those who shall carefully consider the whole matter. So Calvin thought it was primarily to the church in Ephesus, and only secondarily to Timothy. And he was sure that if you thought about it carefully, you would agree. Well, we'll have to see about that. Certainly it is to both. Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he is very aware that the church is listening on. Verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, obviously, to really understand First Timothy, we need to understand who these false teachers are and what it is precisely that they are teaching. That they emerged from inside the church— Seems fairly obvious. Dick Lucas makes that point emphatically. He says, almost certainly, as Acts 20 tells us, these are erring elders from within the house churches in Ephesus. It's these who are the troublemakers, aided and abetted by certain well-to-do women. And it is for this reason that these letters spend so much time on the choice of elders and the problem of women with too much money and too much time on their hands, closed quote. As to what they were teaching, we can make a fairly accurate guess by looking at the two terms Paul uses in verse 3 and then again in verse 7. In verse 3, he calls them etero which means to teach different things or to teach different doctrines. So these are people who are not teaching the gospel as it had been given them by the apostle Paul. They were swerving away from that second word tells us what they were swerving towards. In verse 7, Paul uses the word namo didaskaloi, which means teachers of the law. So these people have stopped preaching the gospel and have started preaching the law. Now, as we pay attention to what Paul actually says, it would seem that this is a different sort of issue than the one he addresses in Galatians. These folks are not so much Jewish legalists as they are Jewish mystics. Their error is less about circumcision and law-keeping and more about myths, speculations, and genealogies. Basically, it seems that they were using the Old Testament as a source book for bizarre and irrelevant speculations. The only modern-day comparison that comes to mind would be the people who spend a great deal of their time trying to figure out the significance of certain Jewish feast days or the potential eschatological significance of the color of the moon. Okay, that's the sort of nonsense and distraction that is being addressed here. Which is why Paul doesn't so much talk about the rightness or wrongness of these ideas, but rather of their irrelevance. Clearly, that is not what the Old Testament is for. The Old Testament is not there to fill in the blanks on our remarkably detailed charts of the end times. It isn't there to provide fodder for our peripheral and irrelevant obsessions. Rather, the Old Testament is there to show us that God is holy, we are not, and that all human beings are in desperate need of a Savior. So Paul is not condemning all preaching of the law, as we will now see. There is a right way to preach the law. He is just condemning the way that these particular people are using it. Look at verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." So basically here, Paul says that, of course, there is a right way to use and preach the law. The law is, of course, given primarily for sinners. The law was given to exert pressure on sinners. It is supposed to push back against their sinful tendencies, and it is supposed to push them towards the salvation that is ours through Christ. That is the lawful use of the law that accords also with the gospel of the glory of God with which Paul has been entrusted. Now, in terms of the list that Paul gives, obviously it's a summary and a sample. He doesn't quote every law, just a few representative laws. He he gives an example of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Well, the law is given for people disinclined to do that, and for those disinclined to value life, and for those disinclined to practice monogamy, and for those disinclined to love their neighbors as themselves, etc. The law restrains such people and pushes such people towards an appreciation of the cross- Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we see the humility of the apostle. Having just said that the law was given for sinners, we see him immediately identifying with those sinners. I was a sinner who needed to be pressured by the law. I was a blasphemer, Paul says. I was a violent man. But thanks be to God. I receive mercy and kindness from God through Jesus Christ. What a marvelous statement, and what a marvelous example for us all. Yes, by all means, press the law upon the consciences of men and women, but be sure to press it upon yourself as well, and be sure to move quickly to the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, as Paul does here. In verse 15, he introduces the first of five trustworthy sayings that are contained In the pastoral epistles. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We assume that the saying itself was Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that Paul immediately identified with that saying by adding of whom I am the foremost. The sayings were probably meant to be pithy little summaries of the gospel that he hoped would be memorized and cherished by his followers. In terms of the content, John Stott says, it alludes to both his incarnation and his atonement and clearly implies his pre-existence. So, as you would expect, the Apostle Paul has packed a fair bit of doctrinal punch into that pithy little saying. As to why he should have been shown such mercy, Paul says that ultimately the reason can only be given as the glory of God in Christ. Look at verses 16 to 17. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the only reason we can ever safely give for our salvation. It isn't because we were better than anyone else. Paul has already called himself the chief of sinners, nor is it because God sees what marvelous Christians we would make, nor, of course, does it have to do with our race, gender, height, weight, color, or any other criteria you can think of. At the end of the day, God chooses us and saves us so as to display his perfect patience, kindness, mercy, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says no more than that. And we would be very wise to follow his example. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymeneus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here Paul repeats his purpose for writing. He has written to Timothy to charge him to wage the good warfare that is characteristic of the pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is a type of warfare. The pastor is like the guard dog that must ever be alert for the wolves that would ravage and scatter the flock of God. The essence of this warfare is the battle to maintain our own faith and conduct and to safeguard that of others. By rejecting this charge, some, that is some pastors or some elders, have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. These two erring elders are to be handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. From this, we ought to learn at least two lessons. First of all, as we read in James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If this declaration of excommunication seems harsh to you, then you are reading it correctly. It is meant to sound harsh. That is why not many of you should become teachers, because teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Apparently, the Bible wasn't kidding when it said that. And so here we see the principle applied. These erring elders whom we presume have been previously warned and who have nevertheless persisted in this false teaching are now being excommunicated. That brings us to the second lesson we ought to learn, and that is that the purpose of excommunication is repentance and rehabilitation. Paul says that he is doing this, he is excommunicating them, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Donald Guthrie says usefully here, the concluding clause to be taught not to blaspheme shows clearly that the purpose was remedial and not merely punitive. Closed quote. The purpose of church discipline is not to punish, not to simply remove irritants, and not to condemn to perdition. The purpose of church discipline is to chasten, humble, correct, and save. The goal was for these erring elders to repent and to be restored, if not to the eldership, then at least to the membership. That must always be the goal of any and all discipline exercised within the church. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of Into the Word.